Good morning, Christ Prez. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is typically the time of year when we might turn our thoughts to the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. But this year will be a little different because we're still in Revelation. We'll be in Revelation through Advent, and then we'll begin a new series after Christmas. But I hope we'll see that it's actually really fitting to be in the end of Revelation during Advent. How so? Well, remember, Advent is a season of waiting. We look back on the ancient people of God who are waiting for the promised Messiah to come, and we also look forward to the day when this same one will come again to make all things new. And in this way, the church is always a community in waiting. Karl Barth once wrote, What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? According to the Christian story, we live and move and have our being in this time between the first and second comings of Christ. We live always waiting for the return of the King. And that's what Advent is all about. Not only remembering and celebrating Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, but longing for and waiting for his second coming, the last Advent. Revelation can help us in our waiting. Remember, one of the themes of this series has been that things are not as they seem. There's more going on than meets the eye. One of the aims of Revelation is to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. We can't see reality as it really is, and we need the curtain pulled back. But Revelation also seeks to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. Last week I said that Revelation isn't a crystal ball. Its main point isn't to let us see into the future, but to help us follow Jesus faithfully right here, right now. But at the same time, it does remind us of the future. That's one of the ways it helps us to live faithfully right here and right now. It says, here's what's coming. You can't see it yet, but it's on the way. Live your life today in light of this unseen future reality for which you wait. In these four Sundays of Advent, we're going to be reminded about the big story we're living in, and we're going to be reminded of what it is and who it is that we really need and also what it is and who it is that we're waiting for. The passage that we're looking at today includes some of the most well-known and also some of the most controversial sections of the entire book. I want you to think of it as a big painting hanging in a museum. You know, we could get really close to the painting and marvel at the details and the texture of each brushstroke. The details are important and the debates about how best to make sense of them are really interesting. Like, what's up with the 1,000 years, and, and what's up with the dragon being chained before he's destroyed? If this were a class, it'd be interesting to get into the weeds on all of that stuff. You know, we could survey the different options. I could kind of stake out my own position and try to defend it. But instead, I want us to take several steps back to try to get a sense of the big picture yeah, I'll point out a few brush strokes along the way that I find especially interesting, but mainly I want to ask, what does the painting as a whole do? What do we see? What's the point? And I think we'll see today that the point is this. The painting reminds us that when we wait for the return of Jesus, one of the things we're waiting for is the defeat of evil. We're waiting for the defeat of evil. And you see, this is something that all Christians can agree on. We might disagree about the details, but we can agree on this. We're not waiting for a king who tolerates evil. We're not waiting for a king who compromises with evil. We're waiting for a king who defeats evil, who destroys it, who removes it once and for all from his good creation. 
So let's see how John shows us this in this passage. He shows us that evil is defeated. He shows us how it is defeated. And he shows us when it is defeated. So first, this passage shows us that evil is defeated. You know, we've seen quite a bit of evil as we've gone through this book. We've seen the four horsemen ravaging the earth with war and famine and greed and sickness. We've seen that behind all the trouble and tribulation of the world is our real foe, the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, the deceiver, and the accuser. Remember, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. We're really at war, and we really have this terrible enemy. And we've seen that the dragon isn't alone. Last week, we looked at these two beasts, one from the earth and one from the sea, the dragon-manipulated state and its propaganda machine, the ultimate false prophet that ceaselessly works to lead people to worship the beast instead of the lamb. And we've seen evil within the church and within ourselves, finding expression in our compromise with idolatry and injustice, leading us to turn from our first love. You see, the world is in trouble and we're in trouble because evil is out there and evil is in here. And we desperately need one to come and sort things out, to make things right, to defeat evil wherever it's found, finally and decisively. And John is showing us good news. Evil is defeated. Look at all the ways our passage shows, shows us this. In, in 19 verses 17 to 21, we get this gruesome scene of all the earthly powers that oppose God defeated on a battlefield, and birds are called to feast on the corpses of those who are killed in battle. This is imagery taken right, of, right out of the Old Testament prophets. It indicates a total victory. We, we see that the beast and the false prophet, that's beasts number one and two, they're captured, they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. These awful evil realities are just entirely overcome. They're decisively defeated and put away. Well, what about the monster behind the beasts? We see the dragon bound for a time and then also thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end of it. That's the end of the dragon. Even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The defeat of evil includes the death of death. It's like one by one, the evil enemies that plague God's good creation are eliminated. And what about you and me? Well, we see a great white throne of judgment and we see that we will be judged and judged perfectly. Even the evil in us will be defeated and done away with once and for all. Now, you could take these images and you could put them into a story that leads you to profound fear and anxiety. Or you could remember that when Jesus first appeared in Revelation, he spoke these words, fear not. Do you remember that? Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, you could place these images in a story that leads you to dread and despair, or you could remember that the one who is bringing the defeat of evil is none other than the slain lamb. All we can really do is trust Jesus, family. You know, to the extent that I anticipate the final defeat of evil and look only at myself, I'm, I'm left with a great deal of anxiety because I just don't really know how to get myself sorted out ahead of time. I don't know how to make myself ready for this. 
But when I look at Jesus, I'm reminded of exactly who it is who will bring the defeat of evil. And then it's something not to dread, but rather something to long for and to yearn for. Well, John shows us that evil is defeated, all of it, the evil out there and the evil in here. Now let's ask, how? How is evil defeated? We'll look at chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. It's an image of Jesus ready for war. Here is the one who is faithful and true. He's not riding on a donkey this time. He's riding a war horse. He has come to bring the defeat of evil. And it looks like the way he's going to do it is through some kind of military conflict. That's what all the imagery here suggests. Only there's no battle. If we step back and look at the painting, we see Jesus and the army of heaven prepared for battle in verses 11 through 16. And we see that evil is defeated in verses 17 through 21, but there's no actual battle that ever happens. What's going on here? Well, remember, Revelation is filled with symbolic imagery. Even when it talks about the future, its point isn't to give us literal descriptions of future events. It wants to show us something that we already know, but show us in a new way, a way that captures our imagination and helps us to see with new eyes. What are we being shown? Well, notice that when Jesus rides out onto the battlefield, followed by the armies of heaven, there's only one weapon that is wielded. What is it? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. In other words, it's not a sword at all. It's his word, which is just a way of saying it's him. His words are God's words. And as verse 13 reminds us, he is the word of God himself. The armies of heaven are there, but the only thing they do is follow Jesus. They don't wield weapons. As far as we can tell, they don't even have weapons. The only weapon John shows us is Jesus' sword, and he's not swinging it around chopping people's limbs off. His sword is his word, and he is the word. The only weapon John shows us is Jesus Christ himself. That's interesting. How is evil defeated? Not by taking up the sword, but by the gospel word. How would this have encouraged the first century church living under Roman rule? Well, who is going to win? Rome with all its mighty military power? Rome with all its violence and injustice and idolatry? Or Jesus with the simple sword of his mouth, his simple gospel word? The vision is meant to give the first century church and the church to direct today, uh, great confidence. Evil is defeated by Jesus Christ himself. Evil is defeated by his word. You know, that fits with everything else we've seen in Revelation about the way of the lamb. Remember the central vision of the book, the vision that reveals what is at the heart of the throne room of God, the vision that reveals what is at the center of the center of everything. Behold the Lion of Judah. Behold the mighty Messiah who will come and who will destroy the enemies of God. And I looked, and there was a slain lamb. True wisdom, true strength, 
one who has conquered by embracing the way of self-giving, suffering love. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the only blood John shows us on this battlefield is the blood that Jesus brings with him. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? It's his own. Jesus the warrior rides to the final battle, which is never actually fought, wearing a robe that is already stained with his blood. Why? Because here's a warrior who has already fought the decisive battle, who has already won the decisive victory. And how did he win? By losing. Not by slaying others, but by being slain. Not by taking life, but by giving his life. And so the armies of heaven aren't dressed in armor, and they aren't wielding weapons. They're dressed in white linen as priests. The only weapons they have are the same ones they had when they faced the dragon in chapter 12, the blood of the lamb and the word of their witness. Here on this battlefield, they simply follow the king of kings and the Lord of lords in his way, which is always the way of the lamb. In other words, as N.T. Wright puts it, Quote, the ultimate justice which drives this victorious battle is the justice of God's love, which will not work with anything other than the word and will not be dressed in anything other than purity and holiness. Love will win the day because in the person of Jesus, it has trampled the grapes of wrath once and for all. Close quote. How is evil defeated? by a very different kind of warrior riding into a very different kind of battle, by Jesus, by his blood, and by his word. Which brings us to our last question, when is evil defeated? Now, one answer that we have to give if we've been reading carefully is this, already, it's already defeated. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 15, that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This imagery of the grapes of wrath connects back to chapter 14, a passage that we haven't looked at, but there we read about the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, what is that supposed to call to mind? A literal wine press and an ocean of blood? No, not exactly. I mean, notice this brushstroke. The wine press is outside the city. Why? Because that's where Jesus was crucified. This is meant to take our minds to the cross of Christ. And this is where we see the ultimate wine press of God's wrath. This is where we see the outworking of God's fierce love against all that would destroy his good creation, including your sin and mine. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. He didn't shed hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood, but the point is plain, he shed enough. There's blood enough to defeat evil while at the same time delivering you. And as we read in chapter 16, verse 17, a voice from the throne, which means uh, the very voice of the slain lamb, declares, it is done. It's done. 
Or as Jesus says from the cross in John's gospel, it is finished. You see, in a real way, evil has been defeated decisively once and for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When is evil defeated? Already. That's one answer and maybe the truest answer of all. But also, we have to answer in another way. When is evil defeated? Not yet. It's already defeated, and it's not yet defeated. We know this by looking at the world and by looking at our own lives. Evil has been dealt a death blow, so it might not be alive and well, exactly, but it's still kicking, and we continue to live with the awful consequences of it. And so we still wait for the defeat of evil. This is Advent, after all. How long do we wait? Well, I don't know, and neither do you. Maybe a thousand years. Maybe a really, really long time. And maybe the heavens will peel back at any moment, and there's the white horse, and there's the white throne. John tells us, Then I saw heaven opened. I'm convinced that one of the keys to reading Revelation is to realize that John isn't giving us a chronological ordering of events as they will unfold in the future. He's just describing the vision he sees. The transitional phrase that John continually uses is not, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. Instead, he's always saying, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. You see, he's describing the order of his vision not necessarily the order of historical or future events. Well, he tells us again here in chapter 19, verse 11, that he saw heaven opened. Remember, heaven is not a far away place, way up there or or way off somewhere in the future. Heaven is another dimension of reality, and it's right here. It's close at hand. It can break through at any moment. Remember, that's what the apocalypse is all about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, an unveiling of Jesus Christ, which suggests that when Jesus comes, he won't be coming from some far-off distant place. He'll simply pull back the curtain and make plain to the whole world what is already true right here, right now. Here is the one who is faithful and true. Here is the word of God who conquers by his blood and by his word. Here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This Advent family, as you wait for his coming, will you receive in a deeper way this one who has already come? And will you follow him wherever he goes? I saw heaven opened, and look, here comes the defeat of evil. Here comes Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.